Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor at Third Sector, the leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we will be demystifying Omaze, the company behind the prize doors for luxury homes and, once, a Lamborghini signed by the Pope. The Teenage Cancer Trust, their first charity partner in the UK, will also be joining us for that. Excellent. But first, we have Stephen Downs back with us again, news editor at Third Sector. Welcome, Steve. You're going to pick over the bones of a couple of news stories that have caught your eye. What's up first this week? Yes. Hi, Andy. Hi, Lucinda. Well, first up today is a story about a very well-paid job advert. Right. So the Wellcome Trust put on Twitter a few days ago that it was advertising for an diversity, equity and inclusion officer mm-hmm. at the handsome payment of £211,000 a year, mm-hmm. which got quite a lot of reaction on Twitter from people saying, oh, that's far too much to pay for someone working in the non-profit sector. But there were other people who countered that this may actually be a really good move in terms of where it puts DEI jobs and the importance Uh of those jobs. You always would say that chief executives, chief finance officers are embedded in businesses and you would expect them to be very well remunerated. So perhaps it's time that some charities were saying the same for DEI officers because it's clearly a really important thing that the charity sector needs to address. And I'm sure we've run stories recently which have said that the percentage of people from minority ethnic groups still remains very low across the charity sector mm. and isn't isn't growing particularly. So, as I said, perhaps this will be an important staging post for an area that needs to develop. I mean, you can't really take this in isolation, right? The salaries at Wellcome Trust are going to be way above average for the not-for-profit sector yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. The The Wellcome Trust is famously the highest paying charity in the UK voluntary sector by some margin because they employ their own investment division to look after their enormous 30 plus billion pound portfolio. And they've taken the view in recent years that it's more effective for them to employ in-house experts to manage that portfolio rather than to shunt it out to other companies to do it and pay them for the privilege. But it, what it means is they've ended up paying very large sums, millions of pounds to their top investment employees. So there are a lot of very well-paid people at the Wellcome Trust looking after its money. But equally, they would say that the portfolio's performance has been fantastic in return. So you're right, Lucinda, it's a vast sum of money for a job like this. But Steve, also, you're right to say that there is definitely a problem in the voluntary sector in terms of representation across the board. Generally, we have run stories saying that the representation of people from ethnic minorities and with other equality areas are not as good as they should be and the charity the charity sector has got some work to catch up yeah sure what else have you been looking at this week steve the other one is probably a subject that could be talked about for an entire podcast or two (laughs) that's the issue of working from home yeah it's a really interesting one the royal national institute for deaf people has gone to a completely remote working Mm. system so all of its staff work from home now they all have flexible hours they've sold all their offices there's no base 
to go to, and they say it's working brilliantly. In the same article that was written by Alina, I think, Blood Cancer UK has downsized its office space, but decided to remain with a hybrid working system. Mm. And I think there's a really interesting issue. When we look back in 20, 30 years' time, when people write their social history books, working from home and the whole issue of hybrid working is probably going to be the most significant social history change that we've faced. Mm. So charities are wrestling with the same decision-making processes that the private sector are, and they're coming up with different solutions. So it just fascinates me. I personally wouldn't like to be away from an office all the time. I think it's important to have that touch point. Mm. But some places, including RNID, have decided the opposite. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject. And in fact, Alina, who wrote the article for us, as you rightly said, interviewed Michael Wilkinson, who's their kind of head of digital there. And he spoke to me as part of the Third Sector Tech Summit a couple of weeks ago. And we had a really interesting conversation about all the stuff that RNID is doing. They, It was three years ago, just before the pandemic, they decided to sell their offices in London and go basically completely remote. And all they do is they just have three sort of two-day conferences where staff come together across the course of the year. They said there's lots of benefits in terms of more diverse recruitment, easier to get people who don't live anywhere near London. But also there are challenges around integration of new people, getting people embedded in the culture of the organisation. But it's definitely something we're hearing lots more charities are considering, Mm -hmm. moving into shared office spaces or downsizing the office space they have because they're not using them as effectively as they could be. I think there's a whole um, movement, isn't there, a campaign on Twitter amongst voluntary sector workers to get charities fully remote. Mm, yeah, it's definitely a topical issue and it'll be interesting to come back to it in a few years' time to see where we're at. You know, will we find that loads of charities have actually mm. followed the example of organisations like the RNID and essentially gone completely online? It'll be really interesting to see what happens yeah well thank you very much steve nice to talk to you again thank you very much moving on to the main portion of this week's episode what do you know about omaze andy well it's funny you should ask do you mean that organization that we're seeing plastered over ads all over the place at the moment promoting prize draws in partnership with other charities for things like fancy big houses in Cornwall and things like that. Exactly. Well, I know a little bit about them. I know they're a US company formed about 10 years ago, and they started doing prize draws for all sort of money can't buy things like a walk-on part in Star Wars and a Lamborghini blessed by the Pope, as I think you mentioned it before. And then, But then they expanded to the UK a few years ago, and several charities have now partnered with them to raise funds but their whole financial model is a little bit unclear so we Mm. wanted to find out some more well just to get us in the mood i expect that you probably have either seen or heard some of their advertising content for their prize draws and i'm just going to play one of their radio ads want to know what it feels like to win a multi-million pound house you want the house well visit omaze.co.uk by midnight tonight because this is your final call for boarding. One person is guaranteed to win our £2 million Marbella holiday villa 
and the Super Draw cash prize of a quarter of a million pounds. Last month, we changed Jade's life. If I could win, anyone could win. You could be next. And the best part? You'll be supporting Teenage Cancer Trust for your chance to win our Marbella Holiday Villa. Joining us in the studio, our first guest for this week is Paul McKenzie, Director of Engagement at the Teenage Cancer Trust, where Paul started working three years ago almost and was previously the Director of Fundraising. Before that, he held senior fundraising positions at the animal charity Battersea and DePaul UK. Hello, Paul. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. <laughs> also with us in the studio is James Oakes, Chief International Officer at Omaze. James heads the team behind the Omaze Million Pound House Draw, which is now Omaze's largest and fastest growing business. He was an Omaze investor before joining the company in 2019. And before that, he worked as an economist and ran a proprietary trading fund, as well as a lottery system startup. James, you've been busy. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks for having us. Um, do you want to start just by saying what Omaze is for the benefit of people who maybe have been living under a rock and haven't heard of the organization <laughs> and how it makes money? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so Omaze when we started it, it was a slightly different kind of company. So we're a for-profit company, but our mission has been to raise money and awareness for good causes. The way that we do that is by putting on incredible draws. And hence, you know, when we came to the UK, uh, we launched in April 2020 with the Amazing Million Pound House Draw. And like you say, people that haven't been under under rocks and stones will probably come across some of our advertising over the last couple of years. On a daily basis. Uh, on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and anyway, so it's basically we, we partner with a charity for a particular house, such as Teenage Cancer Trust. We've managed to partner twice. It's been amazing. And it's relatively simple, you know, so we basically organize the competition, we go out and find the amazing houses and stage them and put everything together. Uh, we then you know, run the campaign, conduct all the marketing, and it basically works out like a profit share with the charity. So at the end of the campaign, we kind of divvy everything up and whatever the net proceeds are left at the end, once you take out the cost of pricing, the cost of marketing, 80% goes to the charity and almost keeps 20%. We make our money by hopefully running successful campaigns. If the campaign is successful, then we make some money as well. Okay. And so then on the finances, just to drill down that into a little bit more, I mean, obviously you're offering these enormous prizes. I mean, the latest one, if you look on your website, is a house that's in Cornwall worth four and a half million pounds. Plus you'll pay a hundred grand of settling in money, stamp duty, which I guess is probably half a million quid in itself. So are you selling tickets in excess of that the value of that house and then sharing the profits with the charity. Well, I mean, that that's always the hope and why we're particularly grateful to Teenage Cancer Trust amongst all of our charities is that, you know, this whole proposition, the sort of the riskiest time for Amaze was when we ran the very first one because we didn't know what the take up was going to be like, you know, how many entrants we would get. That's why I'm very thankful to Teenage Cancer Trust because they actually, you know, they they agreed to be the very first charity with us when we launched back in, in 2020. And at that point in time, we, you know, we were optimistic, but we didn't know whether we would be able to sell enough tickets to cover the cost of the house and all the other prizes. But, you know, we wanted to make sure that the charities were insulated from any of that risk. So we always guarantee that come what may, even if we weren't able to, you know, to sell enough entries, the charity would always get a minimum donation of £100,000. The house would always be given to the winner, all the prizes would always be given out. So it was amazing it was bearing of that financial risk. I'm happy to report that, you know, in, in every instance, we've now given away 12 houses, 12 separate charity campaigns. We've always managed to beat that 100k to the charity. So we always have managed to cover the costs of the house and the other prizes. And obviously over time, we get to understand the model a bit better. It starts to become a bit more predictable for us. And so we're able to take 
you know, risk with slightly more expensive properties like the one you just mentioned. Part of the point about being a for-profit company that's in this sector and helping to raise these incremental funds is that we're able to make the kinds of investments that nonprofits just can't. So there's no way a nonprofit could, you know, go to your board of trustees and say, hey, we're going to buy a 4.5 million pound house in Cornwall. And you're not going to get that kind of thing signed off. And obviously, you know, we put big marketing campaigns, you know, <laughs> you've, you've seen us on almost a daily basis. And you know, as a for-profit company, we're able to make those kind of investments that a nonprofit wouldn't be able to do. And Paul, as James suggested, this must have been quite a risk for Teenage Cancer Trust. This is something that hadn't been done with a UK charity before. Why and how was it a compelling offer to you? So in 2020, it actually came through one of our partner charities, Teen Cancer America, because I'm amazed we're working in, obviously, um, working in the States. And we met James and the team through that relationship. For us, we weren't holding a lot of risk. So we financially knew that we would be able to get amount of money out of it, whatever happened. And if I'm honest, the risk was almost the perception of the model mm. the un- because it was unknown. So it was actually a lot of the conversation organizationally was, this all seems a bit too good to be true. Um, yeah. <laughs> something is this good, do, do we believe in it? So a lot of our work was around due diligence and having lots of conversations with the mates. And it was a trustee decision, you know, and not every partnership we have with corporates go to trustee level, but this one did because it had felt like a bigger conversation. But actually, when we started to work with the maze and we started to talk about how, actually, how much risk are we holding here? How much opportunity is, and not just financially, but from a brand perspective and a reach perspective, it didn't feel that risky once we'd made the decision. Were there any major concerns raised at the trustee level? Yes. A good trustee board has a range of different opinions, right? So we had people on that board who were more nervous, um, people on that board who knew that we had to move forward and do something different. And as an organisation, like what was interesting, we started talking in February 2020, and then you go straight into COVID. And I think what COVID shows us, showed us as an organisation was we need to diversify our ability to raise income to give st- sustainability to an organisation, particularly Teenage Cancer Trust. We were very face-to-face. So basically, Royal Albert Hall, community fundraising challenge events, those were our strengths. So we needed to diversify. This was a model, as James said, we could never do on our own. It was an opportunity for us to raise money in a different way. So all of that kind of came together at just the right time for us. You know, in COVID, we'd changed our budget from 18 million for 2020 to 10 million for 2020. Mm. So it wasn't just an opportunity, it was a necessity to make sure that we could keep our frontline services going. And what was the outcome? How did the partnership work for you that first time around? Well, we got more than £100,000. We got £250,000. And I think, as James said, it was the first time out we learned a lot as on both sides. And I, that was kind of what was great about the relationship is we did learn together. We spent a lot of time on Zoom calls and taught, I, I know James and <laughs> like we have sat on calls, we have spoken a lot. I know the team well because we talked our way through learnings. It was a longer campaign. There was a lot more different things happened. And as James says, a lot the model means that you don't really know what you're going to get at the end. So every conversation was always looking at what could possibly happen. But in the end, we got £250,000. And what also happened, and, and a lot of it is, James talks about being grateful Teenage Cancer Trust, but amazing committed to raising a million pounds for us over a three-year period. Mm-hmm. So 
it also showed that that relationship had been so strong that actually they wanted to pay us back for so, sort of being that first one out with them. So that was agreed at the end of the first campaign? So at the end of the first campaign, the conversation was had and Amaze wanted to commit to raising us a million pounds, whatever happened. Mm. What's been amazing was we then had a second draw and that second draw then raised £800,000 for us. So actually... We're 50 grand over the offer <laughs> because we got to a million pounds in 50,000. So. Right. <laughs> Can't really argue with that. No. <laughs> From the Amaze point of view, how does it go about working with the charities, identifying the charities that you're going to work alongside? Yeah, well, we're in a very different position now to when, you know, back in February 2020. I mean, back then, you know, as Paul mentioned, we were going around incredibly grateful that Paul and the team and the trustees, you know, took that step to try working with us. But as you probably all know, you know the, the charity sector is very well connected. And so the great thing about having that successful first campaign was that it, all the other charities were then calling up Teenage Cancer Trust and saying, hey, this amazing thing, you know, is it, is it legitimate? How does it work out? And so off the back of that sort of recommendations, it meant that thereafter it became much more easy to have, to have those conversations with charities. And to the point now where we have a you know, very, very sort of, you know, detailed process you know, for any given sort of house campaign we'll, we'll be talking to three or four different charities there's a, there's a sort of rfp process and there's a number of different factors What's rfp oh sorry a request for proposal <laughs> so yeah it's basically yeah it's basically a, yeah, a detailed proposal and it has some some key factors and obviously from the ama side we're spending a lot of time you know, talking to our community and understanding what kind of things they would like us to support and there's other factors because you know everyone wants the campaign to be successful and there's certain factors which can help make the campaign successful. Is there a fantastic ambassador who's willing to you know, get behind the campaign and, and support it in that way? That can be important. What's the general reach of the charity? How, how much can, you know, can they get out and mobilise their supporters? The slightly more intangible thing is how integrated is the team and the approach going to be? Because that is a big determinant in the success of the campaign. So if we, uh, particularly on the Marcoms side of things, being really tightly integrated so that we can create those you know, marketing assets together in a way that, that protects and honours the charity brand also enables us to go out go on lots of different channels you know we go on facebook and instagram and google and tv and everything and so there's a bit of upfront work there but so it's really important that, that you know the teams are really integrated and like paul said there's there's a there's periods of time before launch middle of campaign and certainly towards the close of the campaign and when we're actually handing the keys over where we're working very tightly together the tightness of that integrated approach really will make a difference to how successful the campaign can be so are you getting charities approaching you are you approaching the charities or is it yeah i mean that's the the, the, the fantastic position that we're now in is that mostly it's charities you know approaching us now at any one time we might be speaking to 20 different charities and sort of planning things out you know we're now planning things out i mean more than a year in advance right about different campaigns so it's, yeah, it's a very different world to where we were, you know, two or three years ago. When I started as a director of Teenage Cancer Trust, it was when we started this partnership and I was in a director of, a director of fundraising forum, you know, well, the great and the good of fundraising. And everyone was like, what is that amazing thing you're doing? Like, there was a lot <laughs> of doubt around the table. It sounds quite interesting, you know, but no one wanted to know anything and no one wanted it they just was like oh it's interesting you're going out with that kind of thing there was a definite oh you're brave type method mm. if i sit in a director of fundraising forum now everyone's like oh have you got a chance for a coffee to have a chat about <laughs> me it's like it like I, i'm kind of for a long period i was like kind of off the hook with calls people asking me about it so i think the trust that has been built through performance in those draws has really dramatically changed over a, quite a short period of time is mm. that i could now see that if it's 
the differences people are, are desperate to work with or maze rather than previously that you know that was when it was new that definitely that confidence wasn't there I yeah guess. and that tipping point like you say it happened really quickly we successfully did the first you know quarter million raise for teenage cancer trust we made that million pound pledge we then went straight into a partnership with british heart foundation we're actually doing our second one with them right now mm-hmm. and very quickly it then it then starts to be you know we get more inbound kind of contacts but it was, is that, is that sort of that win-win thing or, you know, too good to be true? And certainly when we started, that was, people say it sounds a bit too good to be true, both whether it was charities or, or consumers even. And so we needed to sort of earn our stripes, I suppose, and, you know, actually demonstrate that it all worked and people really did get the houses and the charity really did get the money and that we stood behind it all and we did it all properly. And I suppose you're, from a business perspective, you're looking for charities of a certain size because you want them to have a certain reach and a kind of influence. In the, let's call it the early stages of Amazes development in the UK, it has been difficult to work with very small charities for that reason that you know we needed to have something that people knew and that people understood already um, we have worked with globals make some noise which is actually somewhat of an aggregator charity which then actually makes donations to hundreds of small small charities so we have had a an impact with smaller charities and then we do some of our own just you know outside of campaigns some of our own work with smaller charities we've provided some funding to the Cornwall Rural Housing Association that had the resources so they could help people get on the housing ladder in Cornwall um, we recently made a donation up in the Lake District to something there, which is helping addicts kind of get back on their feet and things like that. So we we do work with with smaller charities, but like I said, the, the main priority for these first few years is like, let's make the whole thing successful. Let's make the model work. And part of that is, like you say, having a bit of brand awareness on the charity side as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, clearly you are benefiting from having an established charity brand like British Heart Foundation on all of your advertising How do you respond to criticism that people perhaps are under the impression that they're giving a lot more than, say, 15%? I think sometimes it is, right, when you factor in the the costs. I know you say 80% of the profit goes to the charity, but that's it's definitely not 80% of what a person is giving in the prize draw. How do you respond to that? Actually, before we launched, we, we registered with the fundraising regulator. So we signed up to the Code of Fundraising Practice. And part of that is being crystal clear in the way that we do our communication. So you know, if you go to our website, if you look at the bottom, we let set it out in very clearly in the solicitation statement, exactly how it works. So we explain that you know, this is how it works, that we give 80% of the net proceeds after the prizes and marketing have been taken out. And we would like to get as much as we can. As we've seen, you know, it was it was two hundred fifty thousand pounds with the very first one. We've now consistently been able to generate up to a million pounds for charity. So that number is going up and up and up, and we expect that to keep going up. So we've raised nine point one million in total so far. There's about six million of that was last year. If we kind of hit our forecast this year, that's going to be almost trebled to almost eighteen million. So. The absolute numbers are going up. We want that number to go up. But of course, the model that we've developed does have a very large fixed cost around, mm. the, around the houses. Now, the good news is that we believe that we don't need to keep increasing the cost of the houses. So this particular one, it does happen to be our most expensive one in Cornwall. But in general, we, we don't think we need to keep doing that. So we think we'll be able to make more and more proceeds, which we can split with the charity. So we expect over time those amounts to go up even further than they are now. Yeah, but even at the million and fifty for Teenage Cancer Trust, that translated to thirty-five thousand hours of you know, specialist nursing care 
for teenagers with cancer. So like these these are really meaningful amounts. Mm, but obviously, if somebody was donating £25 directly to the Teenage Cancer Trust, as opposed to also putting themselves in for a chance of winning a £3.5 million house, then there would be many more teenagers with cancer who could be there, benefiting. There would. I guess the, the only thing I would say about that is that's not the model nor the thing that's in front of the person. So it's a bit like cause-related marketing. You buy a packet of some type of food because you're giving a percentage it helps the purchase but you want the food mm. so i would say that from a mummy's perspective we minimal complaints we've had very little issues or people saying coming to us at all saying that they think that they have been you know there is a trick or a, a poor amount of communication people are going because they want a house my wife is desperate for the cornwall house but they know that they are also benefiting charity i don't think anyone is going into those spaces thinking that they are donating money to the charity mm. directly mm. Um, i think that's the that the really important point is that what we're doing is incremental for the charity and that's the, been the experience of all of our charity partners is that this is found money this is not cannibalizing the existing or you know fundraising methods and, and we're totally upfront about our models like you know we are a for-profit company you know we're running these competitions our mission is to raise money for funds but we're doing something which wouldn't otherwise exist for the charities Paul can probably talk to this better, better than I can but our experience with our charity partners is that for the amount of sort of time and effort that they need to put in you know the amount of expense that they need to spend the return from doing an amazing campaign is incredible mm. And Paul, how would you respond from a charity perspective to concerns that this kind of activity is encouraging gambling and getting people into debt, you know, people buying tickets who maybe couldn't otherwise afford it? I mean, there's been quite a lot of concern around that just this week in terms of the activities of some of the, the large gambling firms. I know this is not in quite in the same ballpark, but there are moral questions there for the charity. How do you consider those? Yeah, I guess. And gambling for the charity sector and for fundraising has been a conversation for a long period of time. I guess the thing for us is that we did a lot of work from a due diligence perspective around how it was being done and we talked a lot about the ask that was put in the fact that you can actually enter this for free so there's a lot of thinking was put into did we feel like those options mean that actually people do have choice about whether they enter this but also about how they enter it and depending on their life situation they don't need to pay necessarily to do it so that for us made a big difference to feeling really comfortable about the model but I think gambling as a whole in this has to be really within the sector away from a maze has to be something you take on a case-by-case basis and make sure you're doing it in a way that's really clear to the people and James what's the amazing point of view on that one I mean the, probably the first thing to say is that there's a reason why the maze competitions are not classified as gambling and that's because they have a free entry route and that that has been enshrined, you know, in the law, and it's and it's so these sort of competitions have been around for donkey's years. They're used by charities in lots of different situations. They're used by commercial companies to promote their goods and all these sorts of things. So we take it very seriously. We run our own checks, and this is actually something that we developed with Teenage Cancer Trust before we did the very fast first draw was having our own internal checks just to double check that people weren't getting into any trouble. I'm very happy to say that we, we've not found any evidence of that. I think it's about 70% of our customers are spending less than £5 a week. So it really isn't, you know, the sort of thing where people are getting into trouble. But we, you know, we take it seriously, we keep monitoring it and we keep an eye on it. But in general, you know, we, we, we like to think that it's a very safe bit of fun. People are not spending huge sums of money. And, and through doing this, we're able to, to make, make some really positive impact in the world as well. Mm. I mean, you don't make it as easy to enter for free as you do 
to enter and pay, right? I mean, I guess it is, it's a business, it's a commercial model and you want to be getting profits, but you do have to send off a postal application, don't you? As opposed to just clicking a button on your website. Yeah, I mean, we designed the competition with the legal advice about how it needs to work from a compliance perspective. And so the key point there is that it needs to be very clear to anyone considering entering that there's there's a way of entering which does not, does not require payment. And yeah, we, we're very confident that, that that's the case. You know, when you actually come to our website, the only way you can find out about anything is to visit the website. When you go to the entry page, equal prominence is the information about how to enter without paying. And so, but they do um, need to get a postcard and write very clearly, and then go and post that as correct, opposed to yes. just clicking a button. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And James, how much time has this partnership taken up in terms of resource within Teenage Cancer Trust? It's kind of from an account management point of view, if I was to compare it to another partnership that would bring in over a million pounds, it's nowhere near the same amount. So you, what you do is you get peaks. So you get a, from a marketing comms perspective, you get a peak when we're going into material design and creative and we, we have to do quite a like work in those periods and we have an account manager who oversees that to make that work but that's not the only thing she's working on it's not an all-year-round job I would say that because of that therefore it, it's far easier to manage a resource point of view it's not I never feel like it's dragging resource out and it, you know as James talks as well we you know we've been lucky enough to get ambassadors involved in the program so it takes some resource from an ambassador recruitment perspective but again, that's more than manageable relative to another partnership that would be similar with a company that was bringing in mm. a million. Yeah. And what does the future hold for Amaze in this area, James? I mean, are you hoping to kind of ramp up the draws that you're offering or is there a kind of a ceiling that you can't really go over because it becomes a bit oversaturated otherwise? I mean, yeah, I mean, we obviously what we have been doing, as Paul alluded to, the very first draw that we did together, we ran that for seven months. We didn't really know exactly how it's going to work. There's lots of things we knew we needed to learn as we went along. And consistently over time, we've been shortening those campaigns. So so we've been able to keep raising around about a million pounds in each of the campaigns. But that's been because we've been making the campaign shorter and shorter so that we can get sort of more campaigns done in the year. And that's basically the story about why this year, hopefully touch would be you know raising 17 18 million and that's that's more coming from us doing more campaigns but that will be a natural limit and, and so i think the next place for us to go at the moment we have a house which is basically launching every other month i think we're going to try if we can condense that down to once a month and i think that probably will be the natural cadence for this proposition we don't know but that's that's what we'll try later in the year and that that will probably be where it kind of taps out and so it'd be like 12 campaigns a year would be what what we imagine doing and if it's just fine that i listened to one of your podcasts recently about collaboration and i think that the thing i would say about working with amaze that's been made the difference is it does feel like a collaboration and to give you an example like our last campaign had quite a few major things happen within it so actually the queen passed away in the first week the first week yeah, yeah. and I got a phone call from James who said, what do you want to do? So there wasn't, you know, with regards to you, you could easily in those situations, go, we're just going to, we have to keep marketing, you know, we're out in the market. That wasn't the conversation. James asked me what I wanted to do what, and, and put the choice to me about what do we want to do in this situation? And I think that's not easily done. That's the relationship and, and a, an amount of trust you get. And I would say that's been the real, the experience working with Amaze it's a big model that could feel scary to charities, but because of how Amaze work in partnership, it, you feel like you have control over it. You feel like you have control over the creative. I'm never nervous about creative that's going out. I'm never nervous about major decisions that are happening because I feel like I, 
have a say at the table rather than I have to be nice to James because James is going <laughs> to give me money. That's not the conversations that we have internally, which I think makes a big difference. It enables that power dynamic to be at the right balance. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the exposure that Teenage Cancer Trust must have got from being on all of Omaze's ads, how has that benefited you? It's one of those things, some are tangible and some are intangible. I think tangible things have been that during those campaigns, our website traffic spikes dramatically and newsletter signups spikes dramatically. And what I would say about that is that that's doing two things. So for us as an organization, obviously engaging people to take action, whether it's volunteering or fundraising is really important. But also, I think the second campaign reached 98% of all adults in the UK. And if we're looking at 2,700 odd young people a year, every seven a day get told they have cancer, our ability to communicate on volume to people about diagnosis and signs of diagnosis and getting early diagnosis is so important and we're reaching 98% of population and getting into parents' homes makes a huge difference to us. So just in one, we would never get anywhere near that. There's nothing that I could do in any way with regards to, because I'm a small charity, I'm a relatively small charity to quite a lot of the players. I couldn't touch this in any other way. And so the, the impact and the reach that this gives us is significant. So financially, it's fabulous and does a lot for what we do. But that's sort of, it's keeping us within the top 50 charity brands. And as a charity that of our scale, I don't think that's not easily done without mm. partnerships like this. Yeah. And what advice would you have for other charities who have got a partnership with Amaze or has one in the pipeline? It sounds like there's very high demand, so they'd be lucky. How could they get the most out of a partnership? Well, my advice would be pull out so that we cannot, they can only, <laughs> can only work with Seniors Cancer Trust. That would be my advice. Um, so my advice would be that be open and honest about your concerns and your worries because Amaze are really open to those conversations. So that would be the first thing. I think get a really good account manager who can pull the organization together and quickly because what it's from a resource point of view, it's not heavy, but you have intense moments and having a really strong account manager and Fern who works in our team is excellent and can really pull people together. I think that's what you need internally. Trustees being brought in is really important because a lot of the questions you've asked us today are the questions that people do ask of partnerships like this and making sure you've got trustee buy-in and comfort there helps you because you can then go on to make the decisions that you want to make and work openly with a maze rather than it feeling like you have to go around the organization or up and down all the time every time you need to make a decision that for me would be key yes and one final question for james what do you want out of your charity partners i think it I mean it's the collaboration and creativity i mean you know this is a marketing thing that we really need to make work. We need to get in front of people. We need it to not be wallpaper. And so, you know, bringing that highly collaborative, highly creative approach so that we can you know, ultimately create amazing content, which then gets the campaign out and gets people in. I think one of the things like the most amazing day that we have as amazing employees is what we call the reveal day, which is when we take, you know, the very lucky winner to their new house and give them the keys. And we also take the charity along and the charity at this point doesn't know you know, how much has been raised and that's you know we're keeping them up to date during the campaign but a lot of the activity happens right at the end as you can imagine it's the excitement builds towards the end and that's just a magic day so you go along there you know you've got the winners who just their minds are being blown walking around this incredible house and then we do these fun reveals and so yeah so the, the charity plays a role in the success of the campaign and the creativity about the content that we create i mean one funny story was that 
we did an amazing house in Wimbledon. The prize reveal there, we always try and do something a bit fun with the prize reveal. And so sometimes it's, you know, balloons popping out of boxes or people turning around with carts. And this time the house had an amazing garden wall. Um, it was about sort of four metres high. And so we thought, okay, we're going to reveal to the charity what we've raised by rolling these banners down this garden wall. And we always do it sort of, you know, sort of like low numbers up to small. So you see all these zeros, you don't know what it's going to be. And so it's like the drums are rolling, everyone's really excited. And then the final, the all important roll starts going down and gets stuck on a plant. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had this moment of, oh no, we've got no idea how much this is raised. But, £12.50. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The point is, obviously it's a serious business raising money for charity, but it needs to be fun. It needs to be something where, where you can get the creative juices going. And so it's always fun to sit down with, with the charity teams at the beginning and brainstorm all this stuff out so that we know we can deliver a great campaign that can have great content and ultimately lots of awareness and you know and a great a great sum at the end and it, just on the the unveiling we did ours i actually didn't get to go to the house because the house was in marbella i'm just saying <laughs> so i had to do it in my office but um that amazed the thing i piece of advice i would give is they do play tricks and it's important for you to know this and the kind of tricks they play is and when we did the unveiling the first number it came up was five hundred thousand pounds and that was amazing for us so we got on film me being delighted and then the ticker started going again oh wow and I felt sick and it was 800,000 pounds and then I was then interviewed afterwards in which I cried and got really upset on camera (laughs) um it makes a huge difference like 300,000 pounds is basically like six more nurses and I think that's comedy effect is that they play tricks but like they really want to make you happy and excite the excitement comes with that that was a great day that filming it was one of my top days at Tina's Cancer Trust and I've had some great days so the real pleasure doing those things with them excellent well Paul McKenzie from Teenage Cancer Trust and James Oakes from Omaze thank you both very much for joining us thank you Well, I hope you'll agree that that was a very enlightening, interesting interview with Amaze and the Teenage Cancer Trust. But now let's talk about something interesting coming up for us in the next week. Andy, Third Sector TV is about to launch. Yes, it is indeed set for liftoff on the 2nd of March. We are hosting an interview with Helen Stevenson, Chief Executive of the Charity Commission, and it's going to be live streamed on the Third Sector website. So I'm going to be interviewing Helen, but also people who are watching live will have the opportunity to be able to submit their questions to the Chief Executive of the Charity Commission. And actually, for us, it'll be the first time that we've sat down with Helen Stevenson to do mm. a formal interview in the five or so years that she's been at the regulator. So it'll be a really good opportunity for us to quiz her about what's going on at the Charity Commission, what they're planning to do in the future, how they're managing their resources, what they're doing around campaigning, how their approach to regulation is changing, their social media guidance that they're consulting on at the moment that people have expressed concerns about. All that stuff and more is going to be happening at 11 o'clock on Thursday, the 2nd of March. All the details are on the Third Sector website. Sounds very exciting indeed. Well, that's it for us this week. Next week, I will be in the studio with Elena talking to Kat Dixon, formerly of Catch22, who raised £17 million for the charity in four and a half years. 
We're also publishing podcast transcripts of all the episodes. They're usually found on the Third Sector website, or there's a link in the show notes. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Andy Ricketts. Thank you to our guests, Paul McKenzie and James Oakes, and our producer, Nav Powell. Join us again next week. <laughs>